This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. You know, enough 70 and 80 hour weeks of SNL where it was just like, this is going to kill us. This isn't going to be fun anymore. And we're going to like wind up turning it away. You know, we got in this industry to be performers and builders. Yeah. But now so much of what we do is administrative. We didn't want to lose that joy. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Karen Hahn. Karen, it is so great to see you. How's 2023 mm-hmm. treating you so far? Pretty good. I can't complain. We've had a lot of rain in Los Angeles the past oh. week and also are apparently supposed to keep having rain for the next week, which I really like. Although I've seen a lot of people sort of saying, like, I didn't move here for this. Like, please make it stop. <laughs> but we need the rain. We need the rain. Indeed, yeah. I hope for much more rain without messing up the driving, which I know is key yeah, in that part that's of the true. world. So tell me, whose voices did we hear at the top of the show? So the folks that I talked to this week were Mark Petrosino and Michael Latini, the co-founders of Monkey Boys Productions, a company that has become, per their website, the leading studio for creating puppets, props, creatures, costumes, practical effects, and entertainment for film, television, and stage. Wait, wait, wait. props? puppets. Uh, (laughs) I need you to tell me a little bit more. Of course. So I think there's a non-zero chance that listeners will have seen some of their work already, as they do a lot of work creating weird and wonderful things for Saturday Night Live, as well as having made props for the Funny Girl and Music Man revivals on Broadway, Little Shop of Horrors off-Broadway, and for the show Mystery Science Theater 3000, just to name a few of the projects that they've worked on. So they're pretty prolific. Wow. So they're the go-to puppet people. Yeah. And I believe that you asked Mark and Michael some questions that are intended exclusively for the ears of Slate Plus members. What will they hear? So for the Slate Plus segment, I asked them about the weirdest or strangest puppet slash prop that they've worked on, which I think leads to a very interesting answer. Wow. That is going to be amazing. And if you're a Slate Plus member, you'll get to hear that at the end of the show. If, for some unfathomable reason, you are not yet a member of Slate Plus, then why not sign up today? You will get extra segments on shows like Culture Gabfest and The Waves. A few shows like One Year and Big Mood, Little Mood produce entire episodes, bonus episodes, just for Slate Plus members. And you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. Also, you'll be supporting our work here at Working. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, now let's listen in on Karen's conversation with Mark Petrosino and Michael Latini. Hello to Michael and Mark. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show. Hey, Karen. Thanks for having us. I'm so excited to talk to you guys because you have made so many wonderful, weird props for TV, for film, for theatrical productions. And I wanted to start by talking about, I think, kind of the weirdest thing that you've done recently, which is the singing meatballs puppets from Oscar (laughs) Isaac's last episode of Saturday Night Live. What instructions did you get for making those meatball heads slash bodies? And was there much back and forth in putting those together? So... That was for Saturday Night Live, as you said, and Mm -hmm. we tend to get a call Wednesday night of the week of the show to find out what's happening. So it's 10, 11 p.m., and I get a text from the producer for the film unit, which is the pre-tape. So they Mm -hmm. shoot on Friday, all day Friday, and then edit. It's, It's insane. It's even crazier than trying to get ready for the live show, which meant we had to make stuff Thursday. And I get this text from the producer saying, I need four meatball skin tag puppets (laughs) and i texted her back and said is this a autocorrect fail what what are you saying here because this doesn't make sense but then i got on the phone with her and she explained that sarah sherman and dan bulla who wrote the sketch had come up with this idea for these obviously if you've seen the sketch these weird Mm -hmm. like skin tags that look like meatballs that have little faces and arms (laughs) and legs and sing uh, a fun little song and we were like this is weird i don't know if this is gonna make it and then we heard the song and we were like oh this is catchy this is actually gonna make it so 
ula u ati gata i ula u ati gata i ula u ati gata i ula u ati gata. Now you know. There's a little meatball guy on the side of my neck, and every time I take the green ribbon off and expose him to light, he wakes up and sings his little songs. Does that clear things up for you? Totally. So what were they actually made out of? A combination of foam and latex. We have an amazing team of six fabricators who are our main mm. group who do a lot of the, the fabrication for SNL puppets and props. And for that, I think they, they made a, a pattern, right, Mike? Yeah, I like think a, we used a previous ball pattern that we had. And it was mm. basically just a shell with a face hole cut out of it. That was the starting foam pattern and then made little arms. And then it all got like glued together <laughs> basically with the silicone and latex and everything. It's remarkable to hear that you guys have to do this basically in like two or three days, like turn these really kind of impressive looking things around so quickly. What are the considerations for when your timescale is so short for working on something like that? It takes a lot of preparation, not only in in our own skill sets, in, in learning and honing our craft, but also mm-hmm. in trying to guess what type of materials we'll need here, trying to guess mm-hmm. what type of timeline we can actually work with here. And and then once we get the call, it's this fun game of problem solving where Mike and I and often Dylan, our uh, head of that team, will put our heads together and go, all right, we can probably buy this to use as a base for this. And we can buy some of this material to slap on top of it. And we can paint it this way or we can print material, which will skin it or we can make a sticker mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be to try and do it all as high of quality and as quickly as possible. And it's all compounded nowadays that everybody has 4K and I guess 8K TVs that you can't get away with um, you yeah. know, a theater quality uh, finish on it. You have to really get clean, which that in and of itself would take normally a week to do. So you have to try mm-hmm. and compress that timeline. So our team works long hours, Thursdays and Fridays, and then we truck it up Saturday and hope that it makes it to air. <laughs> And I want to ask about one other thing that you've done for Saturday Night Live, which I think a lot of people will recognize if they're viewers of the show. You guys also created the White House podiums that Melissa McCarthy zoomed around on for her impression of Sean Spicer. Can you tell me about putting those together? Mike, how about you start? That was a crazy earlier thing for us. I think the first thing we ever did for SNL was for a sketch that got cut in season 40. And I believe the Spicer podiums were like season 42. Yeah, so basically the head of props reached out to us and said, hey, they're thinking about putting Melissa as Sean Spicer on a Segway. And we were like, uh, maybe something more sturdy than a Segway. So we like started brain- and brainstorming and figuring out that like maybe one of those uh, jazzies or something like that, something with more wheels would be a little more safe to put in the studio and make sure that mm-hmm. Melissa McCarthy doesn't face plant. <laughs> I mean, it was just one of those crazy things where we like, we found a used jazzy and stripped it down and then built it back up, basically moved the controller and tried to match the existing podium as much as possible. And then, of course, one of the most fun parts of it was just being able to bring it up there and get Melissa McCarthy to learn how to use it. And it was a (laughs) a very, very quick learning curve because pretty much we said like, okay, this controls your speed. You might not want to go too fast depending on how comfortable you are. And then, of course, she was like, oh, okay. She turns it all the way up and is like zooming all over the place. It was great. Just to tag on a little of what went into it, like Mike said, you stripped it down and then we had our welders build a new steel frame on the inside. Mm. Mike did some carpentry work to build a box frame around that. And then we put foam, like insulation foam that you'd buy at the, the hardware store. And then that got covered with contact paper, contact paper, like mm. you put on a shelf. We found a, the right wood grain because there wasn't going to be enough time to paint it and, and make that yeah. visual effect. It's just that type of cobbling together like you had asked about before. I guess sort of related to that question, like obviously some of these are pretty involved things that you guys have to make. Like since you've been working with Saturday Night Live for several years now, do you have sort of a, I guess, guide sheet where you're like, we can do this in that time or like this will be much harder? Like, do you have kind of rules that you guys play by with them? Because it's unique every week, you never know what they're going to ask for. We kind of have in our heads, like this is something we know we can do or this is something we can't. Mm -hmm. They've come to us with stuff before that we're like, we don't have that skill set yet, or we don't have experience with it. And this isn't the time or place to test that out. Because if we fail, then everybody's up a creek. Thankfully, we have a real confidence and knowledge of what we do and don't know. 
and we don't try and overachieve too much. We feel lucky here that we can make almost anything. It's just whether or not we can make that thing they're asking for in the time allotted. And and sometimes it even just falls down to like, you're asking for this on Friday night and the stores are closed or we can't get those mold make those very specific mold making materials we could have gotten on Friday morning, but the place Mm -hmm. is closed now. That forces our hands a lot. And but then that also provides us with opportunities to do some more creative problem solving. Usually we're not saying no, we can't do it. We're saying we can't do it like that, but we could do it like this maybe. And the writers and producers all are so used to that because of the time Mm -hmm. crunch on the show that they're like, okay, that'll work or or maybe not this and that. And it's a very collaborative back and forth with them, which is great. So I'm very curious about what you said about having your first SNL skit kind of get cut from the air, as it were, where I, I feel like a lot of people who have freelanced in any way have sort of gone through this, where you get an assignment and then you get to the end and the editor's like, oh, actually, we don't really need that anymore or something to that effect. I'm curious what the job was, why it ended up getting cut and how you kind of overcame that, because I think it's hard not to take it personally in the moment. Yeah. So our first sketch that got cut was they were actually they wrote a little shop of horrors sketch for season 40 oh, wow. and it was bobby moynihan was the lead writer on it and the host was scarlett johansson uh, she was mm-hmm. playing audrey so they rented our little shop puppets so we brought our little shop puppets up and we were both there to puppeteer them as well and we did this sketch it was funny it was very complicated and we were hearing from mm-hmm. stage hands that like oh this is really complicated sometimes the really complicated sketches get cut and we were just like okay oh, whatever yeah and and then it did get cut in between the dress rehearsal and the live show yeah. So literally at the 11th hour. And we were bummed. But honestly, in in my opinion, it was a great way to start working with SNL because then Mm -hmm. everything that makes it to air now is a little extra special because we've been doing it long enough now that it doesn't phase us at all when stuff (laughs) gets cut because they still pay for it too. (laughs) Yeah. You learn not to be precious. And I also wanted to ask, you guys have worked on several uh, New York theater productions on Broadway, notably most recently the Funny Girl and Music Man revivals. Those are obviously kind of bigger scale projects, and I imagine you have a lot more lead time for something like that. Is there a (laughs) usual timetable for when you're brought onto a show to work on something for them? We keep learning that you would think there's more time, but often there's not. (laughs) Um, Oh, really? A lot of productions. It's more than SNL. Yeah. Sure. I mean, SNL is the only place we allow to come to us with really short time crunches. Yeah, yeah. But we've had productions come to us to build large puppets where they would normally take us six months to build. And Mm -hmm. they've come to us with two months. Mm. And we're like, we just can't do that. We can't go faster than the speed of light. So again, we do creative problem solving and find alternate ways to make things happen. Each production comes to us with a different timeline. Some places like, oh, we have six months. And we're like, oh, thank you. Great. We'll schedule (laughs) you in and this will be nice. And we have back and forth. Yeah, for Funny Girl, we only did some simple props. We did some mirrors Mm -hmm. that are used in a dance number. And there are lots of 3D printed parts and custom things assembled and painted and all that kind of thing. Music Man seemed to give us a, a good amount of time to do what we did, which was basically... They bought an old two-person horse, and we kind of stripped it down and made it look Broadway-ready. And then we also made the suitcases that are used throughout the show. I think that was probably like a month or two turnaround time, which was pretty much enough time to figure it out. But then puppet-wise, we we also recently worked with the off-Broadway production of Little Shop of Horrors, which Mark and I have individually performed the show over a thousand times. (laughs) Really? Yeah, and we both built the built the puppets multiple times now so that's the ones that came to us wanting new puppets for the show Mm. but only having two months so we luckily worked with their costume designer who had the idea of saying like you guys have a rental set of puppets which we do and they're like is Mm. there a way for you to like theme the rental set so that it matches the new design and that's basically what we did so we're able to truncate the build We'll be back with more from Karen's conversation with Mark Petrosino and Michael Latini after this. Listeners, I hope you've been enjoying Working Overtime, the bi-weekly bonus version of Working focused on listener questions, which you can catch every other Thursday. We love to give advice 
We like hardly anything better and we want to answer your questions, respond to your concerns and generally share ideas on that show. So is there a creative problem you're having or a creative practice that's working really well for you right now? Well, drop us a line at working at slate.com or call us and leave a voicemail at 304-933-WORK. You can also record a voice message and send it to our email address. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. All right, now back to Karen's conversation with Mark Petrosino and Michael Latini. I want to come back to Little Shop of Horrors, but I wanted to ask one more Music Man question first, because when I saw the show, I, I saw the quote unquote dance safe suitcases that you guys made, which is it was really wild, like watching them fling them around like that. So what are the parameters for something being dance safe? It was basically as light as possible. We do a lot of carbon fiber work here to keep things durable and lightweight, whether Mm. it was going to be carbon fiber or foam. And ultimately for that, we ended up using a foam called Zote Foam, which is just very rigid. It's it's almost like rigid, like plywood almost, um, but it's as light as foam. And it's durable enough that if it falls on the ground, the foam doesn't break, kind of like an insulation or a styrofoam. So they're mostly made out of that and then wrapped in the pleather and and hand-painted and everything like that, the same way we detailed the open suitcase that was made out of wood and and the, mm-hmm. the more durable and heavyweight one and stuff like that. I was going to say that the heavyweight one, Mike came up with an ingenious kind of um, hammock inside of it so that the weight, oh, yeah. there's the, the suitcase that the anvil salesman has to drop. Yeah, And it has to thud and it has to sit and not move. And that energy has to go somewhere. So if you just made a heavy suitcase, it would bump and bounce Mm -hmm. and go all over the place. And Mike came up with this, like I said, a hammock basically inside for the weight. So it would hit and the hammock would bounce a little inside, but the suitcase would just thump and sit heavy like like there's supposed to be an anvil inside. It was brilliant. That's fascinating. It's such a fascinating secret, which I guess does sort of lead me into the Little Shop question, which is the Audrey 2 puppet is obviously so iconic for that show. But I think probably not a lot of us know what goes into making an Audrey 2. Can you guys tell us, at least for your company, what goes into making an Audrey 2 that works and is convincing? Well, I'll let Mike tell you some of the details of the mechanics of it, but mm-hmm. just backstory... The first thing you do is you get to know Martin Robinson, who designed and built the original puppets off Broadway <laughs> wow, back in the 80s. Yeah. yeah, He's a friend and a mentor and a very generous person who lent us his designs for, we had made a rental set that looked like the Broadway set from 2003. So we kind of cut our teeth on that, learning how to build those puppets. So when they came to us, like Mike said, with the off-Broadway production, we were able to move more quickly and more expertly. Mm-hmm. So having that knowledge and that experience and not to mention also like Mike said with the performances, Marty cast us in that show as well. So it gave us a more intimate knowledge of the show. Yeah. Mechanically they've been pretty much the same since they were done in the early eighties, minus mm-hmm. the largest puppet. The largest puppet that has gone through the the most changes mechanically. But starting with their four sizes, we call them pod one, two, three, and four, even though they're all Audrey two. The numbers get a little confusing when talking about the pods. <laughs> but pod one is just a simple hand puppet. You know, the puppeteer yeah. sits usually inside a little cabinet and the puppet is placed on the cabinet. And then as smoothly and gently as possible, the puppeteer slides their hand into the puppet and does its job pod number two is old technique where you have a fake arm holding up the puppet and the puppeteers or seymour's arm is inside the puppet so that again is just a more traditional hand puppet we usually go up and work with the seymours to train them about puppetry some have more experience some have no experience to give them lots of training about even though this thing only weighs five pounds, you have to pretend that it weighs 40 pounds. And lots of that puppetry training is often embedded into the show, which is great. Pod number three, which is my favorite, is more of a full body puppet. So it's a very large shell, kind of like two halves of an avocado with the bottom cut off. And you sit on a chair inside this very large flower pot and your legs are covered to make them look like vines of the puppet. But you're inside the body so that there's Mm -hmm. a bar on the top jaw and a bar on the bottom jaw. And you're basically inside of that 
puppeteering it, both like moving your abdomen and, and your core all over the place. So it's almost like the neck of the puppet becomes your waist and your back, and the mouth of the puppet is your right arm mm -hmm. and left arm puppeteering it like that. Sometimes there's a tongue sleeve that you slide your <laughs> arm into to get some fun effect. Sometimes there's some mechanisms in it. Um, the one that we had on Broadway in 2003 had a nice twist mechanism where you turn the handles and it made the lips pucker. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they get very complicated and adding more parts and things. But then the largest puppet, the number four, the one that's like the size of a car, when Marty designed it back in the off-Broadway production in the 80s, there's all these strap systems and bungees that you're supporting it on your thighs and lifting it in all these weird ways. And, and it weighed about 100 pounds. Yeah. <gasps> we knew from doing the Broadway production in 2003 that this thing could be bigger and could be better. And we basically took this very large and heavy puppet and simplified the mechanism so that it is supporting itself. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's a very large carbon fiber shell that sits on a pole now. And the post that holds up everything has a mechanical gimbal in it that allows the head to pivot and rotate. But so that the performer doesn't have to hold it, it's it's on its own platform. So yeah. the platform rolls around, it goes to high schools and theaters and colleges for our rental set. <laughs> um, and it's pretty much the same way that that is on Off-Broadway so that they can push the platform around and move it and swap it out in between the first act and the second act and stuff like that. Yeah, and it seems particularly difficult in a way too because you're having to cooperate with other people to make this one performance happen. What kind of, I guess, training or talk with the other puppeteers did you have to do in order to get in sync, I guess? Even though you're usually puppeteering the puppet by yourself, you're working in tandem with the voice of the puppet. So that's a relationship mm -hmm. that's very much like a give and take. Like you're usually wearing an in-ear monitor so that you can hear their breath, so that you can prep as the puppeteer for for them to say the lines. Oh, Even though wow. you know the song and you know everything, uh, Mark and I were lucky enough on the national tour to get to a point with the voice of the puppet, Michael James Leslie, to be able to do live interviews. So he would kind of say similar things in our interviews, but he would give us that breath and and we knew his voice enough that we could we could match the rhythms it was it was really an awesome partnership so both of you are obviously very accomplished puppeteers like when did the urge to create these as well like kind of come tandem with that or was there like you started with one thing and then moved into fabrication or were you kind of always interested in both I personally got into the arts realizing that it could be an avenue for all the things I liked. Mm -hmm. I mean, we both have similar but different backgrounds. I grew up doing theater in grade school and high school, not only performing on stage, but also doing like stage crew work and, and tech work. And then I went to art school. I went to Temple University's art school called Tyler and majored in metals, jewelry, and computer-aided design. But I didn't really figure out that puppetry was a pathway for a career until late in my college. Mm -hmm. But then I basically like found the path and just drove on it yeah. and met people. And I was able to build things to work on productions, but then also puppeteer things and, and had a lot of great mentors and, and, and access to professional puppeteers to be able to build into the industry. And it's something that I always love to juggle. I don't think I would ever like to just do one. Yeah versus the other i actually originally went to school for marine biology oh wow but then realized that that's not what i wanted to do and and switched to ithaca college because they have a great program where you can create your own major mm -hmm. so i was able to cobble together a puppetry degree and then i went to new york as a performer but i had knowledge of building i had toyed with it like mike said and puppetry is such a comprehensive art mm -hmm. form it incorporates all of those elements of building sculpting designing performing, singing, dancing, directing, like whatever, pretty much all elements of theater wind up getting used in puppetry, mm -hmm. which is like you said, you know, what attracted us to it. It gives you that opportunity. So it's never boring. Yeah. Uh, so when did you two start working together? 2000. Yeah. Yeah. We met the summer of 2000 at the O'Neill Puppetry Conference, right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess we actually didn't work together until the next summer, the summer of 2001. I think, or yeah. something like that, or 2002. Yeah, that's when we actually started working together. But we met in 2000. 2002, we, we were working closely with two other puppeteers, Scott mm -hmm. Hitz and Russell Tucker. 
with us eventually went on to form Monkey Boys Productions. And founding your own company is a big enterprise. Like what was the thought process behind like making that jump? When were you like, now it's time for us to found our own company? I think we were building enough relationships in the industry that we realized that like we wanted to retain a little more ownership of our work and mm-hmm. and and how much work we were doing and hopefully create our own work. Yeah, it seemed like an opportunity because we knew that you're only limited with how many auditions you can get or how many yeah. builds you can get. So it was a way to try and make our own work. Yeah. It was like they say it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. <laughs> yeah. We started the company in 06 yeah. and it was about 2016 that we actually started gaining real traction. Like we were having jobs here and there. But we were still working on the side. Mike was doing construction with his dad. I was mm-hmm. bartending here and there. But in 16, we really started expanding and getting a lot more regular work. And we've been very lucky. That's amazing. Over the past probably eight years, we went from a company with just us to maybe mm-hmm. a company with three employees. And now we flux between 20 and 40 employees. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. Like, because you have um, a lot of people like listed on the website who are part of the Monkey Boys team, how did you go about expanding the company? And now, how do you go about delegating like who works on what? Yeah, so we've also been learning a lot over the past few years about that specifically, like delegating and process and production management and communicating lots of communication tools and stuff like that, hiring the right administrators and the right Mm -hmm. project managers. So we've been lucky enough that it's kind of just been a slow enough tick that we've been able to handle it and not completely pull our hair out. Like, (laughs) like, because, you know, when you start a business, you're doing everything yourself. And then you finally realize there's a little too much of something that Mm -hmm. I can pass off to someone else. So we hired this awesome production manager, Betsy, who does really all of our organization when it comes to the stuff getting made. And then now we have a a really great um, HR and uh, financial administrator, Stacy, that helps us out with all that kind of stuff. We have project managers and team leaders like Bridget and Michelle and Terry and Zach and just finding really great talent and local talent, which lots of people ask us, like, how do you find your talent? There's so much creative talent in the Philly area that we never have a problem finding creative talent. Like, luckily, more recently, we have a little more clout from a company standpoint that people Mm -hmm. are like asking us to work here. Mm -hmm. But even even when we were really small, it, it it seemed not that difficult to to find people that could could work for us and. The only difficulty is taking people's natural talents and the talents that they learned in, throughout their life and kind of like bending them towards the puppet world because we use materials and techniques from all the art forms and all the different ways of making things. I was really struck by what you're saying about, like, I guess learning how to manage a company because I think that's something that we've talked about a lot with the creative people that we've had on the show where it's like once whatever you're working on gets big enough it's not just a matter of you being able to delegate all your tasks to yourself like having to learn to manage people which is not necessarily something everyone likes to do or wants to do (laughs) I can see both of you shaking your heads yeah, we started, we're creatives that started a company. I more recently realized my dad started his own home remodeling company mm-hmm. when I was super young. And I'm, you didn't realize that earlier? <laughs> no, what I'm realizing <laughs> is that like the, what that did to me without me knowing, like seeing my dad, you know, work a full day, come home, have dinner, and then go out on estimates, just seeing that work ethic and what it takes to like run a business mm-hmm. is something that I only more recently noticed that I had put into me at a young age, like something mm-hmm. I didn't notice that that was really a part of it. But it, it's just one of those things that you like, you know what needs to get done and you try and get it done without going too crazy as a business owner, like still making time for your family and everything. We spend a lot of time making sure that we're not going crazy. Yeah. We, we really try not to go crazy because it's very easy to in the entertainment industry and to work 80 hour work weeks. And that comes back to your question of, you know, learning to delegate so that we do at the time because we were handling all of the little elements and all of the different parts. And this way, like Mike said, we can, especially like working with SNL, we're often working six to eight weeks, which is just can be killer. So it's, it's carving out the time because we both have kids Mm -hmm. to get time with them. 
Yeah, it's really important because, I, I mean, again, another theme that comes up a lot, I think, on our show is like burnout. And mm-hmm. especially it, in a creative field, it's very, very hard to avoid that because you want to say yes to every project that comes your way. And then saying no is like a huge pain because then it's like, what if they won't reach out to me again? Like, right. what if yeah. I'm losing that connection? How did you guys like learn how to achieve that kind of balance? Because it seems like you have a very healthy handle on it now on how to make sure that you have a good work-life balance as well as all the people in your company. I feel like from the very beginning, we would have some stressful meetings of like, oh, no, what if we get this? What are we going to do? <laughs> and yeah. and for some reason, I was always calm enough to think like, we'll just hire more people. You just, we, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll take the time and we'll hire. And that adds that. I mean, that's its own stress in itself, just figuring out who to hire. Yeah. But I feel like we've done a pretty good job of hiring more people because that's how the work's going to get done. Like you can't Mm. just keep piling more work onto the same amount of people. You have to just keep growing and hiring more people. And luckily people have been paying for that too. The pricing changes as business grows. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that Indiana Jones taking the step across Mm -hmm. the invisible bridge, you know? Yeah. And thankfully Mike is very bold in that respect because I get so worried. (laughs) We can't just bring somebody new and we don't have money for that or we can't, take this job on. We've never done one of those before. He's like, we can figure it out. We'll make it work. <laughs> I have and, a little bit of an, if you build it, they will come mentality with that. <laughs> yeah. And to answer your question too, part of what helped us learn was, you know, enough 70 and 80 hour weeks of SNL uh, yeah. where it was just like, this is going to kill us. This isn't yeah. going to be fun anymore. And we're going to like wind up turning it away. And we didn't, we didn't want to lose that. We, we get so much joy out of working on that yeah. show and other projects that we wanted to make sure we didn't lose the joy. The whole reason we got into this industry, like, you know, we got in this industry to be performers and builders, Yeah. but now so much of what we do is administrative. We didn't want to lose that joy. Yeah. Lots of meetings about what, what do you want to do? Like trying to really decide what we want our job description to be, which is a great benefit. And, you know, it's one of the pluses of starting your own business. As it grows, you get to decide, what what do I really want to do? Yeah, Yeah, we're so lucky to have that choice. It also seems that you guys have a really healthy working relationship with each other as heads of this company. He's a jerk. No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just here for the money. (laughs) But I think that's also something that's really valuable to have, like in a creative partnership and also something that can be hard to develop or maintain for such a long period of time. Like you guys mentioned that the first project you worked on together was 2001. And I want to ask like what that was and how that went and also how you guys have figured out how to work well together with each other or if it was just like kind of instant where you both like, I get this guy and he gets me. It was, I mean, we worked on a small production up in Connecticut together mm-hmm. for for one summer and that's when we first kind of started living together and then we literally lived together in brooklyn down in bay ridge for two and a half years before then mark and i went on tour together with little shop of horrors so like we kind of lived together for a good i want to say three years before we even started the company together so when you live with someone that long you kind of learn what their quirks are <laughs> and, and how to how to deal with stressful situations together so I, I lean a lot onto that. I don't know about you, Mark. Yeah, I mean, it's it. Michael's like my brother now. You know, mm-hmm. like we've been so close together. He introduced me to my wife. Like we're wow. They went to high school together. We are family. We are our families yeah. are you know joined to extended levels. So that makes it so much easier because we can be honest with each other. We can be like, mm-hmm. dude, this is not going well. What can we do to make this better? And mm-hmm. we don't have to worry about like whatever emotional or psychological walls people might put up that you don't know, you know? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. We'll juggle hats. We'll be like, I need to talk to you like a business partner. I need to talk to you like a friend. (laughs) Yeah. It's almost like just saying that helps. Yeah. And so I have two final questions. First of which is why the name monkey boys? (laughs) So when we were all living together, somebody was reading Vonnegut's welcome to the monkey house. Yeah, <laughs> And they wrote that we had a dry erase board that we'd send each other messages on. And somebody wrote, welcome to the monkey house. And one of <laughs> us drew a monkey picture. And we started referring to the apartment as such. And then people started referring to <laughs> us as the monkey boys. Oh, my gosh. So several years later, when we actually formed the company, it was a natural, you know, we already had kind of a moniker amongst the community. Oh, that's wonderful. I feel like that's one of the hardest things to do, to decide on a company or LLC name where it's like, this is it for the rest of time. It's got to be good. Right. Exactly. It also works because Mike has monkey arms. I do. I have 
weirdly long arms. <laughs> they call it an ape index. Have you ever? No, I've what never heard of those. Is? Yeah, it's a real term that they use. I, I think they often use it in swimming and in rock climbing and boxing. It's called yeah. your ape ape index, and it's your it's the ratio of your wingspan versus oh your height. So, like, I'm six <laughs> foot tall, but my fingertip to fingertip measurement is like six foot four. Wow, it's six six, dude. Is it? I don't know. Yeah, we measure it. I don't want to look too. Like weird. you think of the Vitruvian man, that the classic guy in the circle. Yeah. That's yeah. the you know you you should always be about the same or idyllically, I guess. Yeah, that's hysterical. But it's great for Mike as a puppeteer because he doesn't have to yeah. duck his head. He can just stick his arm yeah. up in the air. <laughs> and my final question: As people who are very very uh, prominent in this industry, you've made such wonderful work. Do you have a favorite puppet that you that you didn't work on, and why is that one your favorite? Uh, BB-8 is a more recent amazing puppet that, mm-hmm. like, I, I haven't been able to work on, like, a, a bot yet, and that's yeah. one of the things I'd really like to do either on my own or, like, get started as, like, an internal project is some sort of, like, RC slash directly controlled robot puppet for, like, a film or something like that. That would that would really be cool for me right now. Mm-hmm. Probably two for me. Uh, being a child of the 70s, I... I grew up loving the Muppets and I would love to try and play with Fozzie sometime <laughs> and same with Snufflepagus, uh, who is coincidentally played by Martin Robinson, who oh, wow, we just spoke yeah. about with Little Shop. You know, two different big Muppety puppets, but they just seem like a lot of fun and they hold a special place in my heart. But who knows? Maybe someday. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's such a delight to get to talk about your work. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for having us. Yeah, really great, Karen. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Karen, I loved (laughs) that conversation. I confess that I am one of those people who has at times in the past used puppeteer in a derisive way as the kind of ultimate (laughs) impractical job or vocation. But this interview totally turned me around and I want to apologize to (laughs) the world for my former attitude. So they both talked about being drawn to a complex, comprehensive art form that incorporates design and manufacturing and building. And then all of those performance aspects, you know, that there are so many different varieties that they work in. Mm -hmm. Are you a puppeteering aficionado? Like, how did you become aware of the Monkey Boy's work? (laughs) I would not describe myself as an aficionado. I would probably describe myself as an enthusiast in that I have next to no practical knowledge about puppetry, but I really love the art form and I love learning more about it and like watching Mm. behind the scenes videos and stuff like that. I became aware of Monkey Boy specifically because Sarah Sherman, a cast member on Saturday Night Live, whom I love, by the way, gave (laughs) a shout out to them during a late night interview while talking about the meatball sketch that I mentioned in the interview with uh, Michael and Mark. Obviously, I'd seen their work before. I was just kind of shocked to discover how much of their work I'd seen without realizing it. But that was the first time that I was like, oh, I didn't know their names before. But now I know that I need to be paying attention to them because their work is so incredible. Yeah. And they're great talkers. I mean, they obviously have a fantastic partnership and that really shone through. And it's just good to hear that working together very closely and Mm. incredibly intensely isn't going to mess up what's obviously a really profound and important friendship. And I was struck by their habit of saying, I need to talk to you as a business partner or I need to talk to you as a friend. You know, that's a really great way to seek clarity and protect the relationship. So I know that your writing partner is also your partner in life. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, (laughs) have you designed any strategies for making sure that pressures on your creative relationship don't mess with the personal relationship? 
I think we're still working on it. We've gotten a lot better at drawing that line in the sand, metaphorically speaking, so that <laughs> if we become frustrated about a work thing, it doesn't carry over to our personal lives, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah. We don't say it so directly. Like, I, 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 we don't say, I need to talk to you as a business partner. But I think it helps that we tend to set aside specific chunks of the day to do creative work together. Uh-huh. So we kind of know when that block of time is over, we're back to our normal, quote unquote, lives <laughs> rather yeah. than business business life. But it's really hard, but also really rewarding when you can actually make it work. Wow, that's so smart. I would say that when I was younger, I did do some creative work with a woman who was my first serious girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And it was really great because we did have a great relationship. And we had, you know, we we did vibe together very well. But it was also sometimes tense. And I think Mm -hmm. it would have been easier (laughs) if we'd had those time blocks, you know, because we were trying to do you know, as it, as it happens, there were radio projects outside of work, mm-hmm. which meant that on top of all the other strains, we were exhausted when we were trying to collaborate, which was hard. So very smart, Karen Han, very smart. <laughs> I loved your questions about timing, like how they get clients to realize and plan for how much time it takes to make a convincing, smart puppet or prop, mm-hmm. which it's complicated by the fact that for the last six years or so, they've been making convincing smart puppets and props in like 48 hours for yeah. Saturday Night Live. And I suspect that every profession has some equivalent of that problem, which mm-hmm. in our world you could summarize as you say you need a week or more to write something good. But when news breaks, you seem to be able to produce something great within hours. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard that, but I feel like I have. Do you have any advice for balancing time pressure with a desire to do your best work? I think it's a skill that you develop as you go, which I think Mark and Mike sort of allude to. They've been in this industry so long that they know exactly what they can do in what time frame and how much they can push themselves outside of that, which is not something that you'll have as good a handle on when you're just starting out in any given field. I think it's also important to be as flexible as you can when you get a request like that. Like it's nice if you can say to the person who's asking, you want a product in this time, I can deliver B product, which will still work and fulfill the need, but maybe not be exactly what you wanted. And I think what Mark and Mike said about not wanting to deliver a subpar product is important too. If you really know that it's not going to work, it's better to acknowledge that and pass than destroy yourself trying to make something that ends up being not as good as anyone wants it to be. I guess the bottom line is know what you can do in that time frame and start from there. And I, I sort of thought about this like in what you were saying with regards to media specifically. I think this yeah. happens a lot when like someone dies in an obituary. Exactly. That's exactly what I had in mind. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's like if you know enough about that person, it will be relatively easier to bang out that obituary in like a yeah. couple of hours. But if you don't know anything about the person, you need to pass. Like it will be really, yeah. really hard for you to do it well. So wise. Uh, (laughs) I was really impressed by the way they handled the first sketch that they worked on for SNL getting cut and the very last minute. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. I'm sure the fact that eight or so years have passed since then is a factor, especially since they've become go-to collaborators for the show. Yeah. But as you said, Karen, it happens. Mm -hmm. Stories get cut for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with your work. Projects get cancelled. Pivots happen. Do you have any advice for how to avoid spiraling when something you've worked (laughs) on and that you kind of had hopes for, you know, Mm -hmm. doesn't happen for reasons that are just beyond your control? The biggest thing to remember is something that I think you've just mentioned, which is mm-hmm. that 99.99% of the time, the fact that your thing has been cut or that there has been a pivot is not really about you at sure. all. Yeah. It's usually about larger corporate needs or money. And you have to at least tell yourself to not take it personally, even if you still feel sad about it. You have to mm-hmm. sort of 
have the rational knowledge in your head. That said, if it is pretty clear that it is a you problem for that 0.01% of the time, then I think that's sort of a good thing too, in that you can take a step back and try to assess what you can do better or change rather than thinking that it's your fault that the company you work for is undergoing budget cuts. Yeah, I think it's also worth it to try to get excited about whatever you're working on next or just to move on to something else. I don't think you'll be able to totally forget the canned project, but it'll help you feel more hopeful about the future, hopefully. And also, in the 99.99% of those cases, the fact that you did some work will give people an idea of what you're capable of, and you have an established, a slightly established relationship. So hopefully, you can just think about how to grow that relationship moving forward, rather than thinking of it as a total end. Yeah, yeah. Mark and Michael clearly really enjoy their work. Mm-hmm. In all its different aspects, you know, both the problem-solving side of it and then the performance, the, yeah. the art of puppeteering. And I was so glad to hear them say that they didn't want to lose the joy that it brings them. Mm-hmm. And I know that at some points in my career, I've tried to sort of ignore or maybe just kind of squelch <laughs> the joy <laughs> or at least kind of tamp it down a little bit so that I could, you know, just get stuff done and focus on getting a good review or, you know, getting a raise or or something very sort of process oriented, focusing on the work because it needs to be done rather than because I enjoyed it. And there's even a kind of school of thought that if you are committed to creativity and making it be part of your life, you should do it as a side project so that the need to pay the bills doesn't kill the joy. So, Karen... (laughs) We've got uh, 30 seconds. No. (laughs) What do you make of that debate? That's such a tough question. I definitely don't think it needs to be a side project because then the implication is like you're not getting any joy out of your day job, which is such (laughs) a huge chunk of your life. It's like, don't don't do that to yourself or at least try to find some joy in that too. But I think that if and when... Uh, that kind of creative work that we're talking about becomes your primary work, you have to make sure that you're not totally losing the joy. Because there are definitely moments when it becomes not fun, but at the end of the day, you should still love it. And I think we've sort of talked about this on the show before, where everything will be hard sometimes. Everything has ups and downs. Um, But you shouldn't be ending every day feeling awful or resentful towards your line of work. And if you are, then it's probably time to take a step back, if you can, and reassess what actually makes you happy. Yeah. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) That's very existential. (laughs) No, but oh my God. I mean, it, it just rings so true. Like, yeah, everything gets hard at times. Yeah. But it shouldn't be hard all the time. My last question for you today I must ask, do you have a favorite puppet or puppeting experience? This is such a fun question, and I do have an answer for this, which Mm. is that I am obsessed with whenever you can see Kermit the Frog's legs. (laughs) Like, especially when he's riding a bike around, it's just, well, sure. it just feels so special. It helps you kind of suspend your disbelief a little more. Like, there's not a hand inside the puppet making him move around. He's moving yeah. his little legs and he's cycling, which seems <laughs> unbelievable for a puppet. Yeah. But, and of course, I have to turn the question around to you, which is, do oh. you have a favorite puppet? I would say that my, to the extent that I do have a favorite puppet, it's got to be like from my childhood. So Mm -hmm. the big puppets when I was a kid were Sooty and Sweep, which were very basic hand puppets worked by a gruff Yorkshireman. They also (laughs) had a a female friend, Sue. And I just kind of have a slight fear that they might have been kind of awful, but I just don't remember (laughs) enough to, but I would say there's a, a decent chance of that. And then another sort of slightly embarrassing thing, it's like saying that your favorite comedy performer is Benny Hill, but <laughs> Rod Hull's Emu, you know, which it was just kind of physical comedy and part of that craziness of puppets mm-hmm. were like, you know, it's not real. And yet, yeah. when, you know, like you, you kind of embrace the uncanny valley and like, Absolutely. I know it's not real, but uh, that's looking pretty convincing. And yeah, then of course, it's like, I want Kermit to be real. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Why shouldn't he be? He's the sweetest yeah. guy. Oh, my yeah. God. Sometimes when I just want to, like, have a moment, I'll just watch him sing The Rainbow Connection. It yeah. just makes me feel good. Yeah. What a cool I'm guy. I'm with you on that one. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all the time we have this week. 
Unless, of course, you're a Slate Plus subscriber, in which case you will soon hear a little something extra from this week's interview. And that's not the only benefit of Slate Plus membership, of course. You will get extra segments on our show and on shows like Culture Gabfest and The Waves, entire bonus episodes of shows like One Year and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to our guests, Mark Petrosino and Michael Latini, and thank you to consummate puppet master Kevin Bendis, who produced this week's show. We'll be back next week with Isaac Butler's interview with cookbook author Ali Slagle. Until then, get back to work. Hello to our Slate Plus listeners. Here is an extra segment from my conversation with Mark Petrosino and Michael Latini. And you guys mentioned that you were cast to puppet Audrey 2 for the Off-Broadway one as well. How often does it happen that you are doing the puppeteering yourself as opposed to handing it off to someone else to puppet on their own? To be clear, I did the Broadway show back in 03. Okay, Audrey okay. and Mike and I did the national tour. Just uh, We don't want to take credit for other people's work. We often try to get cast as the puppeteers for the stuff we build, but Mm -hmm. it it really depends on the production. Some shows they're like, no, we already have a cast in mind or we build for theme parks in Florida. So they have their own crew down there. Mm -hmm. But like when we go to SNL, if we build puppets there, we perform those puppets. Oh, that's amazing. Is there a a weirdest or favorite puppet that you guys have been able to puppet yourselves? There's plenty of weird ones. Yeah. Yeah. Like the the meatballs. (laughs) The holiday baking contest that they do for SNL. Yeah, Yeah, lots of those cakes (laughs) are weird. Weird story with that is so we shot one of the holiday baking contests during the pandemic. It was the one with Timothy Chalamet. And there was a very chocolatey cake with a hole in it. Mm -hmm. And I was the one puppeteering it. And it was like one of the first person's hands I shook since the pandemic started. (laughs) So my wife and I have this joke. The first person's hand I shook after pandemic was Timothy Chalamet's covered in chocolate pudding. <laughs> I was lucky enough. My very first job out of college in 2001 was as Bear in Bear in the Big Blue House Live, the touring production of oh, Bear wow. in the Big Blue House. Yeah. So Bear was originated by Noel McNeil, an amazing puppeteer and puppet mm-hmm. director. And I was lucky enough to dance around the United States in a bear puppet, which was a, <laughs> it's just a really great puppet. Lots of meet and greets and screaming and hugging kids and stuff like that. It's really fun. I was lucky enough to do Madama Butterfly at the Met at the Metropolitan Opera. Wow. And in the show, there's a butterfly has a child who's supposed to be three, and you can't cast a three-year-old and put them on stage. Yeah. <laughs> and when you cast an eight-year-old, they're still a kid, and they still just wave at their mom the whole time. And so they decided <laughs> to Anthony Minghella and his wife Carolyn Choi designed this very beautiful, stark, almost no theater influenced version of it so Mm -hmm. it looked like uh asian especially east asian theater and um they decided to use kind of bunraku style uh puppets for it for um for the child which for people out there who don't know that's a three-person puppet so it's a full body puppet where one person manipulates the head and the arm another person manipulates the body and the right arm and then a third puppeteer manipulates the legs and I was lucky enough to be the head and arm for that puppet. And it mm-hmm. was the production itself was so beautiful. Just to be a part of that was awesome. And then to get to play this little kid and interact with these, you know, world-class talents and without speaking, make this child emote and draw emotion out of the, mm-hmm. you know, 4,000 people out there in the audience was so much fun. And that's it for this week's Slate Plus. Thank you so much, as always, for your support. 